All right, we gotta get this thing in context. Romans chapter two, you got your Bibles, get them out. It's a long chapter, we're gonna make it through it. I'm gonna hit the highlights. Listen, listen, I get 20 sermons to go through all of Romans. I think John Piper took 2,400,000, I'm just kidding. He took like 250 sermons in like eight years. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think he did 350 sermons, something like that, in a 12-volume commentary set to go through Romans, and so we don't get near enough time, but we're gonna go through all of Romans chapter two today, and we're gonna finish on time. But we've gotta put it in context. So here's your outline for Romans. This is a basic outline. Cross, condemnation, chapters one through three, ending there with verse 20. Righteousness, we start talking about that righteousness that we receive from Christ and how that works itself out in our life, resulting in chapter eight of therefore now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we get to that point, that's the good news. Outlook for Israel in nine through 11. Sanctification then, how do we live that Christian life? The practical application section of his letter comes in 12 through 15. And then salutations and greetings and all of that type stuff comes in chapter 16. So where are we right now in chapter two? This is not a trick question. (laughs) Condemnation. Okay, so look at your neighbor and say, you're condemned. Now, now some of you are sitting there thinking, wait a second, I'm saved, I'm not condemned. We're not to that part yet. So you can get messed up if you start reading Romans chapter two and you're thinking way too far ahead to the gospel and to the grace because Paul is that lawyer building his argument and as he's building his argument here, he's getting ready to condemn us all. Like we're all toast. And so he's laying this argument out. So number chapter one, he introduces himself. He says, I long to come see you. And then he jumps right in with the gospel. The gospel, I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God to salvation for everybody that believes. It's the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And then in verse 18, he starts with the condemnation pushing on us there. All of these things for, you know, listen, you traded the glory of God for earthly things, for little idols, for human beings, for creatures, for people like that. So God turned you over. God gave you what you asked for. You want to live a life in sin? God gave you the life in sin. That's what he did to you. And about that time, all the religious people, all the spiritual people, the Jews, if you will, the Pharisees of that day would have heard Paul condemning everybody and he gets to the end. And when he's talking there at the end of that chapter, remember we went through it, this hits us all. Though they knew God's righteous decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only did them, but they gave approval to them. What did they do? Full of envy, covetousness, evil, unrighteousness, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. This, yeah, you got that one. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And somebody in there is going, amen, Paul. Give it to them. They deserve to be preached to. They deserve to be preached to hard. Give it to them. And Paul says, time out. You're next. And that's where we're going. Okay, so we have healthcare exploration day. We've got guests. How many of you are in nursing or medical field, pharmacy, something along those lines, pre-pharmacy, pre-med? Okay, I'm gonna try today. Don't send me an email after this and say, you really messed up that illustration. 
but I'm gonna try today, all right? So I tried to look up the difference between like vaccination, um, inoculation, all of those type things. Like, yeah, so in your mind, think about a vaccine, not a particular one. Just what is a vaccine? <laughs> Especially not one that has anything to do with corona. Um, vaccine. Here's the definition. Simply put, a vaccine is a substance introduced into someone's body to prevent them from getting a specific disease. It usually consists of a small amount of killed, weakened, or otherwise modified version of a disease. Vaccines work to prevent the disease by stimulating antibodies or giving us some immunity to the disease, and so the immunity is built up so that then it doesn't affect us. So here's my question to you as we get into Romans 2. Has cultural Christianity inoculated you to the radical life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm not even to my main idea yet. This is just a starter question. Let me phrase it a different way. Has being a good person, whatever that means in culture, better than the person next to you, better than the worst person you can imagine, I don't know where the scale tips, but better than somebody, has being a good person vaccinated you against your understanding for your need as a sinner for the gospel? Here's my fear. There are far too many in our culture, in our society, and dare I even say in our audience right here inside of this chapel, who for some reason you've gotten it in your mind that if I'm just a good person, or if I do X, Y, and Z, if I read my Bible, if I go to church occasionally, or, or if I go to church religiously, if I put a little bit of money in an offering plate, maybe if I go to a Christian college, if I do a Bible minor, if I graduate from a Christian university, then I'm okay. And I can go live my life however I wanna live my life, doing all the things that I wanna do and living the American dream where I, I make a whole lot of money and I get married and I have 2.5 children, however that works out, and then I end up with like three cars because that's just what we do. And we end up in a really nice house and we never do anything for the gospel other than just have stuff. Live a happy life, eat way too much food, especially Chick-fil-A. All of these type things happen in life and that's success. Is that your view of the gospel? Because if you've been vaccinated to a true understanding of the gospel, we have a problem. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't call you to give up one little quarter of your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that you lay down your life, you pick up your cross daily, you follow him wherever he sends you and whatever he tells you to do. And he may send you somewhere where you're gonna have 2.5 kids and cars and all that type stuff. And that's fine if he does that. He may send you to a different city than what you think he's gonna send you to so that you can be part of a church plan and a gospel witness in a city that needs it. He may send you overseas and that may be what he calls you to. He may call you to a hard life. Are you ready to lay down your dreams and your plans to submit to his plans? Have you ever really repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ or are you just trying to be a good person? All right, here's your main idea, and then we're gonna walk through the chapter. I'm not gonna read it all, it's too long. We're gonna walk through it in like a running homily type thing. Here's your main idea to write down in your notebook, though. Moralism 
and spiritual rituals will not save. Hear that clearly this morning in this text. You being a good person will not save you because the standard is not the person you're sitting beside. The standard is Christ's perfection and God's holiness. Spiritual rituals will not save you because walking an aisle, saying a prayer, even being baptized or in this day circumcised is not what the gospel is all about. Circumcision is a symbol. Baptism is a symbol. It's not the gospel. So if I ask you, tell me how you were saved, and your first thing is, well, I was baptized. Not that I repented of my sin, not that I put my faith in Jesus Christ, not that God radically changed my life, but I was baptized. If that's all you got, that's not enough. That's not the gospel. That's the public declaration of the inward decision. The inward decision is the salvation not getting dunked and getting wet in a lake or in a baptismal pool or wherever it may have been. That's not the gospel. Your baptism doesn't save you. Paul even says, I thank God I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Well, there's a clue there. The gospel doesn't save us if Paul's thankful he didn't even baptize them. So we got two, two points and then I'm already preaching. I'm sorry, I'm just having fun. Two points. Moralism will not save you, one through 16. And then spiritual rituals will not save, 17 through 29. So let's walk through our text here. Here we go, walking through our text. Paul, amen. Those rebel sinners, those people. Anytime in our minds we start thinking those people or them, oh, we're on our high horse, aren't we? We're up in our prideful aspect, those people. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like those people. Whoever those people are, I'm not like them. I'm different, I'm better. Get him, Paul. Paul turns and he says, therefore, pulls it all in with therefore. You know the saying. You see therefore, you look to see what is therefore. You have no excuse. So think back. What verse is it? Verse 20, end of verse 20. So they are without excuse. Therefore, you have no excuse. You see what he's doing here in the letter. This is all read at one time. They're gonna remember that. They're used to read, hearing things read to them. So these people have no excuse. Therefore, now you also have no excuse, O man. So, O man, is he talking about the Jews? Well, he brings in the Jews in verse 17. So maybe, we think so, but he uses O man here twice in the beginning. So maybe he's thinking about just a broader religious type person. For our context today, by way of application, we could say maybe he's thinking about us. Maybe he's thinking about religious people. Maybe he's thinking about the people that go to church all the time that haven't genuinely been saved. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, ever judged anybody? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Whoa, Paul. I don't do all of those things we talked about in Romans chapter one, but we still sin. And Jesus has told us that we may not murder somebody, but if we have the anger and the bitterness in our heart, we still have the same heart issue I may not have committed adultery, but if you have lust in your heart, you still have the same issue. Verse two, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse three, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourself, do you think you're gonna escape the judgment of God? 
So where are we in this section of scripture? It's condemnation. He's building his argument here. He's saying all these people who are godless and have replaced God with idols and worshiping other people, yes, God is righteous to judge them. But time out here, all of you who know the law and you still don't do it, God is righteous to judge you too because you still don't do it. He's defending God's righteousness because the gospel is the righteousness. The gospel is what saves us. It is the power of God. And so here he says in verse four, or do you presume on the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Friends, here's a timeout moment. Here's a comma moment. When God gives us what we want, Sometimes he's giving it to us so that we can find out that's not gonna satisfy, that he's the only thing that satisfies. And he's letting us go down a trail so that we hit the dead end. In his grace and in his mercy, he's allowing us to do the very thing we want so that we smack headfirst into that dead end and realize, wait a second, this ends badly. That's God's grace and mercy to bring you to repentance. So when you smack into that concrete wall and it doesn't budge and you say, oh, this is bad. Your next thought should be, but Jesus is good. And I may have messed up, but I can repent. I can turn to Christ. I can do what I'm supposed to do in the gospel by the power of the spirit. It's God's grace. Maybe you're sitting here right now and you have a besetting sin and you have something that you're going on and you are presuming upon the grace of God. And what Paul would say to us is don't presume upon the grace of God. Now, friends, I'm not trying to encourage you to be moral people. I'm trying to encourage you to be so radically in love with Jesus that you do what you want, but what you want to do pleases God. It's not legalism. We don't work our way to get to God, but we get so much of God in our lives that the things that bring us the greatest joy are the things that please our creator, our savior, our God. Verse five, it says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart. Now, if you circle in your Bibles, if you underline, you can circle the word heart there. It's gonna show up two more times in this particular section of scripture. And so right here, we see the Pharisees, those who know the law, but they don't do the law. It's because of your hard and impenitent heart. So take note, I can know the scripture. I can memorize scripture. I can have a Bible minor and I can still have a hard and impenitent heart. That should be scary to all of us. says you're storing up wrath for yourself. And on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, righteousness of God, remember, we're pulling back that in. So, okay, yeah, I see what you're doing here, Paul. You're saying God is just in his judgment of evil people who have replaced what they know about you for other idols and other things. But, but God's also righteous in judging those people who know the law, but they don't keep it because they have a hard and wicked heart and they need a heart transplant but all they're trying to do is look good on the outside. They're trying to do enough things on the outside so that people say, oh, you're a good person, but on the inside, they're still a mess. And God's gonna righteously judge them too. In verse six, he says, he's gonna render to each one according to his works. Now pay attention to this. He's gonna render to all of us according to our works. How many of you are perfect? Anybody out there? Certainly not me. I mess that one up frequently. So if he's gonna render to me according to my works, I'm in trouble. And so are you. So Paul's building his argument. He's gonna render to you according to your works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Why are you saying that, Paul? Because God's righteous. If anybody here keeps the law perfectly, 
He's gonna give you eternal life. Anybody here wanna take that path? We've already blown it. Every one of us here has already blown it. We're not gonna do that. But for those who are self-seeking, right here, and do not obey the truth, yep, been there, but obey unrighteousness, yeah, been there too, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and the Greek. There's the phrase, remember it? It comes back to the gospel's the power of salvation for the Jew first and then the Greek. And now it pulls here. Not only that, but the gospel is also gonna be condemnation because God is righteous for the Jew first and to the Greek. This means in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. In other words, we're all in trouble without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without grace and without mercy, we have no hope. He's building that condemnation case. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law. Okay, so here's what he's doing. Let me, let, me draw, let me draw a transitionary statement here. Okay, Paul, you're telling us that because we have the law, we know the Bible, we know Moses' law is what it would have been referencing to at this time, that we're in trouble because we don't keep it. But what about those Gentiles? What about those Greeks? They don't have the law. They don't have Moses' written record. Are they gonna be okay? I don't like what you're doing here, Paul. And Paul says, okay, listen, pay attention then. For all those who have sinned without the law, they're also gonna perish without the law. And all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearer, they hear the law, but that are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So when those Gentiles who do not have the law, then by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, start, underline it, highlight it, hearts, circle it, asterisks, it's pointing back. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Remember, hearts in this context would have been your being, your mind, your soul, your body, all of those things, that personality kind of wrapped up into the heart. It's written on their hearts. What do you mean it's written on their hearts? Anybody in the room ever been in an argument? You've ever been in a disagreement? You've ever had a difference of opinion with somebody else? The question you wanna seek is who's right and who's wrong? How many of you have been there? And how many of you have been right? Just be honest. You're not being honest because I know we're a bunch of smart, intelligent, prideful people and all of us have been right when somebody else has been wrong. All of our athletes better raise their hand too because the refs are never good enough. <laughs> At least in my opinion. And I'm always right, so it's okay. <laughs> Think about this. I'm right, you're wrong. How do I know there's a right? Back up one step. When you have a disagreement and you're trying to convince somebody else you're right and they're wrong, how do you know there's a right and a wrong? You automatically, intuitive in your mind, you know there's a right and there's a wrong and I'm right and they're wrong and that's gonna be the main point of this discussion. And what he's saying here is that everybody knows there's a right and there's a wrong. Every society throughout history has had a right and a wrong. You say, oh, well, what about the headhunters? What about the cannibals? Well, they didn't cannibalize their own people in their tribe because then you wouldn't be able to sleep at night because you'd be worried you'd wake up the headless horseman. And so they didn't do that to their own people. It was just to other people. So it's okay to do bad things to other people, but not to our people. Is it okay to steal? No, that includes cedar borrowing, by the way. I'm just saying. (laughs) 
If it's not your board and you're late for class, don't borrow it. Just be late for class, all right? It's our, yeah. And if it, put it back if you've, I'm stopping. All right. There's a right and there's a wrong. How do we know it's wrong to borrow somebody else's stuff without their permission? It just is. Uh, You could go back to God's word and defend it, but we know it's wrong anyway. You don't get to take my stuff. This is my stuff. Every person in existence knows there's a right and there's a wrong. We get so smart, we start trying to defend this. And this happens at other academic institutions. There's no universal truth. Is it okay for me to punch you in the face? No. You go to jail for that. Why? Because it's wrong. But you just told me there's no universal truth. I don't like you, so I cannot punch you in the face. Like what? Do you see the logic of no universal truth and no right and wrong? And what he's saying here is we all know this. Listen, Paul is telling us, Stop listening to all these people who are so smart that they're stupid. They build all these arguments that are logically hermeneutical gymnastics because they want to justify their own sin. In creation, we know there's a creator. We find a watch in the woods. Somebody put it there. It didn't evolve out of the grass. It has irreducible complexity inside of it. We know there's a right and a wrong. Why? Because there's a right and a wrong. There's a God who has a standard and it's right or it's wrong. And everybody, all of the Gentiles, they have a law written on their heart. All of the Greeks, they know. Their conscience bears witness against them. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. You say, oh, wait a second. My conscience can't excuse me. Does that mean I can be saved because I have a little bit of light? And if I respond to a little bit of light, I'll be okay. Your conscience doesn't lead you to Jesus Christ and the cross. Your conscience condemns you because we all mess up. We all know we've done something wrong and our conscience has told us that it's wrong. And then you think, oh, wait a second. I was watching this Disney movie and this Disney movie called Pinocchio. Anybody ever heard of it? Has a little cricket. And the little cricket, whose name is Jiminy, is singing a song with Pinocchio, who wants to become a boy. And the song with Pinocchio is, let your conscience be your guide. Anybody ever heard the song? Yeah, it's old. And, you know, it's not a remade Disney movie yet, so it's not as popular. But it says, follow the straight and narrow. And then when temptation comes, give a whistle and let your conscience be your guide. Here's the problem with that philosophy, and that philosophy is out everywhere more than just Disney. Our conscience has fallen. Our conscience can be seared. We can justify our own sin because we live in a fallen world with a fallen sin nature. And here it says their thoughts excuse them, but they also condemn them. On that day, when according to my gospel, meaning God's gospel, Paul writing here, God judges the secrets of men that scare all of us, that God knows it all, by Christ Jesus. Verse 17, he introduces a Jew. But if you call yourself a Jew, okay, let's read it, and then I want to take it and apply it to a modern time frame. I know this is written to the Jew. I want to help you apply it, though. But if you, number one, call yourself a Jew, that means you were God's chosen people. And, number two, rely on the law. And number three, you boast in God. And number four, you know his will. And number five, you approve of what is excellent. Because you, unlike other people, are number six, instructed from the law. And you're sure that you yourself are number seven, a guide to the blind. I can show the blind people where to go. And you're a light to those in darkness, number eight. You are instructor of the foolish, number nine. You are a teacher of children, number 10. 
having the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, here's where he has built them up. You are all these special things. And guess what? Verse 21, you then who teach others, why haven't you taught yourself? He's building his case. He's jerking the rug out from under us. You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law, but you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is even written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here's the deal. I had a testimony on my application. I come to chapel. I sit at the front and raise my hands when we sing. Nothing wrong with raising your hands when you sing. I love it when you do that. So don't, I'm not against that. I'm just building my case. I go to my Bible minor classes and I made A's in them. So I will have graduated from Cedarville and been to 500 chapels and have a Bible minor. So I will be the most educated or one of the most educated congregation members in my church. I've been baptized. I've been a church member for I don't know how long. I'm okay, Paul. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not about checking all the boxes. Here's my fear, Cedarville students, is I tell you, no Bible, no breakfast. Read your Bible. Reading your Bible is not the answer. A changed heart and a growing affection for Christ from reading your Bible is the answer. Memorize scripture. Memorizing scripture is not the answer internalizing what God has revealed to us through his word so that we love him more and we have affections for Christ instead of affections for the things of this world is the answer. Meditate on scripture morning and night. You can get legalistic about all these things and still have a heart that's impenitent and cold just like all of these Jews here. And what I wanna say to you today is it's all about having a changed heart. It's all about loving Jesus. It's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about all the things. You can't bear that weight. You can't be perfect and you don't have to be because you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, you've been chosen, you've been adopted, you've been justified, you've been declared righteous. And so when you feel a weight that you can't bear, you go back to the cross, you go back to Jesus and his grace, you go back to the spirit that lives within you. Here's what he says to him. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. you. You need a heart change. Verse 25, they say, wait a second, Paul, we're circumcised. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. We've already messed that up. So if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Your spiritual rituals will not save you. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So if somebody that doesn't know the law or is not circumcised keeps the law and does that, aren't they gonna be better than you? So then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law is gonna condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law? For no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Here's where he comes to the main point. Underline, circle, star, highlight, whatever you do. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Do you have a cold and impenitent heart even though you know the law? Do you have a heart that has been condemned by your own conscience 
and perhaps at moments justified, but still one sin places us in judgment. But circumcision is a matter of the heart whereby the spirit. Here we get to a little bit of gospel hope, not by the letter. His praise is not from man. It's not outward appearances. It's not a whitewashed tomb. It's not that we're putting that forward. His praise is from God because God looks upon the heart. This is what we're after. This is what we want. So what we see here by way of application. Actually, before I do application, I wanna read, I wanna read a text to you. I may have it for you on the screens. Luke chapter 18, verses nine through 13. Here's your difference. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. You get the difference. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. Those robbers and evildoers and adulterers, all those people you talked about in Romans 1, or even like this tax collector over here. Because I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. I've been circumcised. I've been baptized. I've been a church member. But the tax collector over here, he stood at a distance because he knew he needed the gospel. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That should be our prayer, all of us. And it should change the way we interact with everybody. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when somebody else does something goofy, we don't look at them and go, I thank you, God, I'm not like them or those. It's God, we have mercy on that sinner just like you had mercy on me, a sinner. Because we're all in the same boat. Here's your application quickly. Everyone is condemned. We all fall short. Let me give you the preview because some of our people won't be here. They're guests. Preview chapter three, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. Chapter three, verse 20, when we end the condemnation section, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We're in the middle of condemnation. And what he has done today is he said, listen, we are all sinners in need of a savior. And if you're trusting in anything other than the gospel that he is not ashamed of, that is the power of God for salvation, then you're doomed. Friends, don't presume upon the kindness of God now in your life or ever in your life. Don't think that just because God's not judging you right now that he approves of your actions if you know they're wrong. He's giving you time. He's being patient. He's being kind. He's being loving. He's giving you time to repent. Don't misunderstand this and think this means your conscience can save you. And don't think this means your conscience can be your guide. The word of God is our guide. It's the filter through which we see everything. Our conscience condemns us, just like creation condemns us. But general revelation does not save us. It does not tell us about Jesus and the cross. It does not tell us we need to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It condemns us. God is righteous in his condemnation. We need to take the message of the gospel to the world. Rituals and works will not help us on the day of judgment. Please don't trust in that profession that you may have made at a camp that didn't change your life. Please don't trust in that prayer because it's a magical potion that saved you. No, 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 no. Don't trust in walking an aisle. Don't trust in baptism. You need to repent in your heart, humble yourself, declare that Jesus is king, change your life so that you follow him and live for him. That heart change is what saves you. All of those other things are not bad things. 
but those are manifestations of a changed heart. And that's what matters most. And finally, friends, we all need the gospel. Your faculty members, staff members, all of our guests today, every student at Cedarville that is now or ever will be, we all need the gospel because we all need new hearts. So what's our main idea for today? Moralism and spiritual rituals will not save. Friends, I want you to know you are loved. You're loved by us, but more importantly, you're loved by God. Dear Lord, would you help us to examine our own lives, our own hearts? Would you help us to recognize what a sinful, fallen world and a sinful nature can do to us and how we can rationalize all sorts of things? Lord, would you help us not to seek to be good, but to seek to love you, to seek to be saved, and to let any good actions not be actions that we're doing to earn salvation, but let those be actions that are happening after salvation as proof of our salvation, as the fruit of our salvation, as what you've called us to do, Lord, because we love you and we wanna serve you. Lord, would you help us to have clarity about what your word says to us in these matters? Would you help us to glorify you this day? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You are dismissed.